Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. Having moved house and started a new job, it's been a little while since I've been able to publish an episode of the podcast, but I'm hoping to get back on regular schedule. I've got a few saved up from last year and from early 2019 to publish, so I'll be bringing those your way very soon. This episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast is a special one because I'm talking to Dr David Bullock, who is the National Trust's Head of Habitat and Species Conservation. On the 18th of May 2019, David is retiring after over two decades at the Trust. During my first year with the National Trust, he has been one of the amazing people who work for the Trust who has made it so enjoyable to be there. He's taught me so much about ecology and wildlife during that time. He's one of the most knowledgeable people that I think I've ever met, particularly on those subjects. He's been so supportive of me too as a new person in the Trust and he's become a true friend. And I'm sure that I'm not alone within the National Trust and many of the organisations that it works with in saying that I will truly miss David, a person who's full of joy, passion and generosity about the natural world and who's always willing to spend some time having a conversation with you over a coffee or a beer. So publishing this episode is a tribute to David in a way. It's my way of saying thank you. At the time of recording, I didn't know David was going to be retiring. And we open with David's first encounter with wildlife, an unforgettable childhood childhood tussle with a goat. We talk about kickstarting natural processes and how important the climate of fear created by predators and carnivores can be for the wider ecosystems and landscapes. And we talk about the National Trust's approach to looking after nature and how that has changed. And we cover trendy beavers and the Lundy cabbage and the cabbage's endemic invertebrates too. And I should also probably add that David has plenty to keep him busy in retirement, not least of which he is the chair of the Board of Trustees of the Vincent Wildlife Trust. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at wildvoicesproject.org and at Wild Voices Proj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. That's all for now, but let's dive in to this latest episode. Voices Project podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Um, I'm going to start where I usually start, which is by asking where your interest in wildlife, natural history, the environment began. Yes. Okay. That's very, very easy. Um, I had what a former colleague of mine described as an epiphany moment uh, when I was about four, when uh, in the first house that I lived in, which was a rented cottage in central Lancashire. I was pinned against a five-bar gate by a goat. And uh, then the farmer's daughter came out and said, Daisy, give over and pull the goat off. And uh, so I stopped screaming at that point, or some time after, I guess. Um, but interestingly, I uh, then went on to do uh, contracts in the summer holidays to do with university, first degree, and then also a PhD 
on the ecology of goats. Right. And I found myself, even at the age of four, being completely fascinated by wildlife and getting into all sorts of scrapes, going into places where I shouldn't have gone, just exploring, looking for stuff. So that was an early epiphany moment. And I do have a recollection from that time, which is very interesting because uh, I work for National Trust and I recently went to a National Trust property, which I hadn't been to ever before, which was just a couple of farms down from where that epiphany moment happened. But the other one that happened there was there's a tour, which is one that has bilberries on it, which are locally called Wimbries in central Lancashire. And we went up, I remember when I was four, collecting bilberries, Wimbries, for a bilberry, Wimbry pipe. So why was that Why was that goat moment an epiphany moment, or what was the epiphany that you had? It was, it was just so uh, close to an animal, a big animal, right. because it was the size of me in terms of its height. Well, I was smaller probably, and, I was, and it was a, a, a very uh, aggressive interaction as far as the, the goat was concerned. But, but also I saw the goat being pulled off. I mean, since then I've caught hundreds of feral goats, and also counted hundreds of feral goats <laughs> as I think you know there's a goat count coming up in the, in the Friday after next or this Friday, Indeed, Friday, yeah. coming, Friday week and um, so we're still, still doing that I think there's another thing which is quite important is that goats are globally are often feral goats, non-native invasive species with tremendous impacts on islands and what happened to me with that goat it may have been connected, who knows, but I have worked a lot on islands and I have worked on non-native species on islands and trying to reduce the impact of non-native species on islands, mm. including goats. Yeah. So maybe there's a connection there. And was there anyone in particular who helped to kind of nurture that early interest in yeah, wildlife? Yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really interesting. So, so I think there's something... Um, when I was uh, um, in the early stages of my career, I was an academic, and so I'd have, may maybe in the first year of biology, um, I would have a hundred people in the class. And out of that hundred people who were studying biology... This is when you were an undergraduate? No, when I was a, an academic. Oh, when you were teaching. When yes. I was lecturing. Um, probably about 1% were intrinsically interested in natural history. They could not stop being interested in natural history. Yeah. And I think I don't think that percentage has altered over the years particularly. There will always be people for whom it's hardwired and they just can't stop looking at wildlife or mm. being interested in wildlife. The rest of them have to work at it. Um, I was one of those people who just couldn't stop it. So I'm a naturalist and uh, I can't help being a naturalist. So every time I'm out or in, in the case of bats, I'm always looking at wildlife, trying to understand wildlife. It's not science sometimes. Mm. It's actually much more than science. It's much deeper than science. It's just hardwired. Yeah. And so that's, that's going on. And so when I was 11, for example, or 10, walking trespassing into a sewage farm to go bird watching um, a, a van pulled up and said what are you doing here uh, there were two of us and we said well we're, we're, we're bird watching he said well what are you looking for and at the time we genuinely were looking for willow tits which you know are as rare as rocking horse droppings over lots of their range in, in Britain these yeah. days yeah but at the time 
it was possible to see them. Now, this was when I was 11 or 10. It couldn't happen these days. But this man said, well, I know where there are some willow tits. Hop in. <laughs> and we did. We didn't know yeah. this man yeah. at all. And uh, he was amazing. His name was John Shakeshaft, fantastic bird watcher, with whom we spent a lot of the next subsequent years bird watching with. Mm. This was somebody who was an electrician to trade, who knew calls so well that he could discern races of wagtails. So white wagtail and pied wagtail have a subtly different call. And I could do it yeah. because of him. Mm. Uh, water pipits and rock pipit, subtly different call and so on. I mean, this is really discerning stuff, but he gave me the confidence to do that. But what he did that day is absolutely imprinted on my mind. So what he did, he took us out to Rosthern Mere, which is south of Manchester, quite close to Dunham Massey. Yeah. We stopped at a shop to get some peanuts. We parked by a wood. I had peanuts in my hand and I put my hand out towards the wood from where we were parked through the window of the car. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> a marsh tit and a willow tit. <laughs> no, I don't quite believe perched it. Perched on my hand. And so I got the differences. But as you know, the calls are completely different. Mm, yeah. And uh, uh, that's what uh, started me off, really. Mm. You know, to be be that discerning is really quite important, and that's with a species which wasn't really separated until, you know, a hundred years ago. But the calls are, are there. So that's one uh, big influence on my life as a bird watcher. But then that drew me into mammals, which were much more difficult. Yeah. And th the reason they were much more difficult is that often nocturnal, cryptic, difficult to find, low density, and so on, and much less visible. But then, of course, by the 80s, there were things like bat detectors, for example. And uh, so you could actually, it opened a door to, to working with bats, even though they were quite primitive in hindsight. They were um, pretty dreadful in terms of the sounds they produced, but at least you could get a handle on the crude distinctions between high-pitched sounds and low-pitched sounds. And that really opened a door in terms of one cryptic group, as did you know, standard live, live traps for, for mammals. Mm. So I got involved in mammals quite a bit. And was that when you were a teenager, or...? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you get um, distracted when you're a teenager, you know, because of hormones and, uh, you know, all, all the other things that are going on. But um, um, still, you, as a naturalist, you can't resist going out and bird-watching or on the back of bird-watching, which was easiest to do seeing what else was around and trying to detect what's there and uh, well you know still doing it did it this morning didn't go out consciously bird watching just was aware of what was around yeah have you got a similar mammal experience from that time akin to the marsh tip willow tip experience well yes and when i say similar just one that you know yes. say is particularly strong yes in your memory. i mean the, the late derek yolden who was uh, an academic in manchester university he was a mammalogist, and uh, I mentioned to him that we'd been seeing bats around this sewage farm near Chalton, where I used to go bird watching. And bless him, he cycled out to um, with a head torch, which we'd never seen before. We'd never seen a head torch before. And this was in the days before bat detectors, and a net, 
in order to try and catch the bats that we were seeing. We failed to catch them, and actually his way of catching them these days would be considered illegal, but uh, because it wasn't a static hand net, it was very, very, very move, moving hand net. Um, but, I mean, that was really interesting, because that was even before bat detectors. It just kind of opens your eyes. I should say, since then, so much has made it easier to work with difficult species, camera traps, DNA, mm. for example, uh, uh, make, make it so much easier. And the kit, the bat detectors, for example, are so much better. Um, <clears throat> hydrophones, you know, things like that. Um, I've just got to tell you about what happened on Friday morning. Yeah, last Friday. Last okay. Friday. It's Monday morning right now. Yeah. 6.02 in the morning, I was at Nailsworth bus station to get the bus because my bike's just been nicked and I was going to Stroud station. And I just habitually peer over the wall at the bus station into Nailsworth Brook to check on where the trout are. Mm. And the trout are in different stations, so further upstream you get the bigger trout, then the smaller trout, then the smaller trout. 6.02 in the morning, a gigantic dog otter just (laughs) swam downstream in front of me about five metres away, completely undisturbed by me just looking over there. And then within five minutes the the trout were back in the stations. (laughs) 6.30, 6.30, I was still waiting for the bus, and a dipper started singing on the, on the bank opposite. Not bad. No, not bad not at all. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, so. How do moments like that make you feel? Oh, it's just wonderful. I mean, there are two things there. Firstly, the dipper, and, and dippers sing in the winter, you know, and a really mm-hmm. cheery song is fantastic. It's, a, it's an icon of around where I live, where um, the limestone streams buffered the effect of acid rain, which knocked dippers out in quite a few places. Um, so they're still there and they're thriving, as far as we can see. The otter is really interesting because in our lifetimes, it's recovered from the bad effects of polychlorinated biphenyls, mm-hmm. uh, which affected its reproduction. And uh, so it's really made a comeback. And uh, early last week, again, I was talking to somebody from a local fish farm who said, the otters are back. What are we going to do about them? I said, well, celebrate them. And actually, this otter had probably just been for his breakfast upstream to the fish farm. Yeah. Um, but so um, that y- it makes me feel great that otters have recovered. It's a great experience to see a big otter. And also just to observe how the trout simply just got out of the way when it moved down this canalised stream and then immediately positioned them, themselves back, mm. in, back in the in their stations, uh, for which they're very, very, very faithful and traditional and very territorial about it. So it must be hard to leave them, but if you see a big predator coming downstream, you get out of the way. Yeah, it makes me feel good. Good. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's really interesting because you, 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 I think you've got to be an optimist and an environmentalist. Yeah. Um, the few people I know who are uh, pessimists um, don't do, are not doing very well um, and, you know you, you've got to keep up yeah keep up mm. knowledge obviously comes over time but what were some of the skills that you picked up through that early bird watching and bat watching that helped you become you know the, the excellent naturalist that you are today and ecologist I, I, you, you think I'm excellent uh, last weekend not this one but the one before we were at a place which I gave you a, a riddle to try <laughs> you and give me the riddle, yes, I haven't done it yet. Um, <laughs> so um, you can't name it. <laughs> we, we identified a plant that was just growing by the place where we were living as one particular plant, which was quite rare. 
and now we've since looked at it and uh, we made a complete mistake. Uh, we'd already told the wardens and I'm about to email them this morning to say, sorry, it was this, not that. <laughs> so, uh, expert, no. Um, um, you need to know that you can sometimes make big mistakes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in especially in terms of identification. Um, in terms of skills, um, the, the interesting thing is that just to have the confidence to realise that you can be very discerning in terms of smells, sights, sounds, all the stuff that makes up what bird watchers call jizz. You can apply to lots of different mm. groups of animals and plants. Yeah. And all those cues, which are often very subjective, qualitative, nothing to do with science, you build them into your appreciation, evaluation, or identification of mm -hmm. what's there. And so I've just been building up those over, over the years. And of course you go through, I mean, I'm getting old now, so you, you will start to lose them as, as time goes on. But <clears throat> nevertheless, they're still, they're still there. So, yeah. yeah. I think I for detail is hugely important as well. I'm not naturally someone for detail, but I've recently started bird ringing training where you have to have a real eye for tiny, tiny details that you don't when you're bird watching. Oh, absolutely. It's a completely different... Um, set of brain cells I think you know just looking for um, stages in malt for example mm. or the colour of the you know uh, one particular primary feather and, and so on um, it's really um, something which is I don't know that's that kind of level of detail I mean it, it would be interesting to ask yourself why you're doing it I mean I did I did learn to to ring I, when I didn't get my C license I've been I was too mobile at that time when I was learning and really couldn't keep up with the trainer yeah but I've since been a trainer. I've, I'm, I've trained people to work with bats, to license to work with bats, which requires a similar level of um, discernment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really, you know, you're asking a hell of a lot of somebody sometimes. And sometimes we don't realise just quite how discerning we are. Mm -hmm. I guess that comes down to the fact that we, it's hardwired for us genetically that we have had to be very discerning throughout our history in order to be able to... Um, avoid trouble but also catch things or eat things that are not poisonous or the right things to eat at the same at, at, at one time so we've had to do that mm. unfortunately what doesn't seem to be in our genetic makeup is we don't seem to think beyond a few years ahead yeah and that's a problem for us when we're confronted with external long-term trends such as climate change Absolutely. That's the problem, I think. Yeah. Uh, we're not evolving fast enough to actually accommodate that kind of thinking and thinking ahead. And that's despite the fact that, uh, you know, in selfish gene speak, you know, the legacy that we're leaving behind will be felt most keenly by our children and their children and their children. And that um, doesn't seem to be playing out in terms of people's minds when they take the car on a very short journey to work with only themselves in the driving seat. Mm. This is jumping ahead a bit, but seeing as you've mentioned it, do you think it's partly institutions like the one whose head office we're sitting in that kind of compensate that short-term genetic approach that's inbuilt? Okay, so <clears throat> there really is, um, uh, it, it really is a useful strap line forever for everyone. Um, and, and the USP of National Trust is is very much around 
we, we own land and water forever, that, mm. that sort of thing. And that, that, that is a really good comfort blanket for lots of people who sign up to become members. It's really important to them to have that. That, that is the contract that they sign into. Mm. And um, the, unfortunately, what then goes with that in a rather crude way is it will always be the same. And actually what we need to get to in a positive way is to an understanding that yes, we can own and manage for the long term, but yes, we must accommodate environmental change, accommodate change in that process. And mm -hmm. people don't like change, as, as, you've, as you've seen. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back to go backwards a little bit. So um, you've mentioned goats already um, mm. in your in your <laughs> extensive study of feral goats. What did you learn about the relationship between the land and large herbivores, and how okay. has that shaped your view of ecology and conservation today? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I mean, goats goats are really really interesting because they are marginal. They're on the edges of society. Nobody wants them, especially feral goats. They're mm. just there. You, there's no open or closed season. They're not protected in any way unless they're considered to be... A particular population happens to be classified as a rare breed, and even then there's no real protection. So they're on the edges of society. Um, and that means two things, really. One is they, 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 they are there, but they're, they're on the edges of... Um, uh, land use and economies, rural economies and so on, nobody really wants them, they can't make much use of them. But at the same time, you can make use of the fact that they are surviving in, in indescribably marginal situations. So they've gone now, but some of the feral goats that were on some of the islands in the Galapagos, they, at some points in their year, could only drink seawater. Um, and uh, you know for a ruminant that, that ought to be really really damaging mm. <clears throat> and the other thing that goats can do is whereas we have to drink water to dilute urea to make urine they just pump the urea back into their gut system to digest it and get more protein out of it mm. which is a pretty phenomenal thing so they're actually better at surviving in incredibly arid environments than to say kangaroos for example that that sort of thing they are remarkable and we've got a lot to learn from that kind of physiology but also what you what you see in a goat is something which is it can graze eat grass and sedges and rushes but it can also browse leaves trees it can even climb trees it's a very good climber and so it can mix and max, match box and cox in terms of its environment. Mm -hmm. And it likes a varied, diverse structure in, in, in its environment and food as well. And so can we use that? I mean, for, you know, for centuries now, we've been trying to keep grasslands open and free from scrub in order to conserve the wildflowers, certainly for decades. But in terms of um, the, the, the product, the grazing that's been there, sometimes grazing has relaxed. That's economic grazing, such as sheep, over the last few decades. And scrub has moved in. Is there a way of saving the flower richness of those grasslands? Mm -hmm. And there may be, if you bring in something like a browser, like a goat. And we use goats a lot for that kind of purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I've been involved with others in... In uh, advising on what kind of goats where, how many, 
in order to deliver a particular nature conservation product which would be less scrub and possibly more flowers but certainly open habitats. Are there places as well in the UK though where there are too many goats and there's overgrazing? Um, The overgrazing where goats are typically is down to domestic livestock. Right. Um, But uh, in North Wales, for example, um, the feral goats there are managed, aka killed, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, every year in order to reduce the impact on certain features of nature conservation significance, such as the woodland regeneration, for example. Or, right. But also, I think they, you know, they do climb over walls um, in North Wales. They do get into allotments as well, which is very bad news. Yeah. And uh, they absolutely apostate when that happens, and uh, they will be controlled. So you know, they, they, they can behave very badly. Um, in terms of the kinds of things that we want to keep hold of. But at the same time, they can be really, really useful. Mm. So uh, the other thing that's come on the agenda to do with feral goats, which I think is quite interesting, is they are food for eagles. And they're also food for those large carnivores that some people would like to consider reintroducing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you, <clears throat> and I'm I'm specifically referring to feral goats here as opposed to uh, wild deer, which obviously could be food for large carnivores as well. Yeah. Um, but um, feral goat kids are very small, and golden eagles uh, can carry away feral goat kids. In other words, they can provide an important food supply early on in the year. That's of live prey which is what golden eagles need in order to successfully breed. They can live on carrion for a long time as a pair, but they do need some live prey like hare, grouse, or feral goat kids in order to to feed, or lambs. So so I think there's there's something around, um, you know, there's there's a big push at the moment for um, white-tailed eagles doing very well in Scotland, apart from one or two estates in which they are persecuted. Yeah and a few other places but they, they clearly have a big impact positively on local economies for example a mull and there is a push for a similar kind of initiative in England at the moment mm-hmm. and it, it could well be that uh, you know feral goats have a role in providing food for big eagles mm. to return to what was um, their wider distribution before we persecuted them in Victorian times. Yeah. And the same might apply to some of the large carnivores if they were ever to be released. Particularly if you can have the goats at a level which is perhaps helping certain habitats but not, you know, not having too many of them. What large carnivores and possibly a large birds of prey would do is, is create that landscape of fear. Mm. Uh, goats are very, very, very used to being on very steep ground and taking cover on those places. So if you did have large carnivores or large birds of prey in places where they hadn't been for a long time, expect the feral goats to hug the steep ground where there's lots of cover more. And that just keeps them out of trouble. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reduces the possible conflict with farmers, for example, of damaging mm. walls and so on. So I can yeah. see, you know, it, all it would take is, is the presence of something like a large carnivore or a large raptor for um, a lot of these things, like goats, like deer, 
uh, to be uh, very, very sensitive to where they are mm. and also to be very careful about making sure they're not in the open, for example, and vulnerable. Mm. Uh, so that, that, certainly, that certainly happens. Um, there's a nice thing going on uh, at the moment. We know now some good evidence that um, recovering pine marten populations can reduce the density of grey squirrels. Now, they didn't grow up in an evolutionary sense together. Yeah. So pine martens were in the old world, grey squirrels were in the new world. Um, <clears throat> and red squirrels seem to be able to minimise the risk of being attacked by martens. They do get eaten by martens, but, but it's maybe a bit less frequently than grey squirrels. And, and grey squirrels cannot be a major part of the pine martens diet. It would be too costly to go hunting grey squirrels all the time, especially when you've got lots of field bowls and fruit that you could eat, yeah. which is much easier to get. But there is something around that which is fascinating, this landscape of fear. But the other landscape of fear that could operate is that pine martens are very vulnerable if they're in open ground away from trees, even 50 metres away from trees. Mm -hmm. They're very good climbers, but they are very slow, relatively speaking, out in the open. Very vulnerable to attack by foxes, uh, other large carnivores, uh, if they were there, plus eagles as well. So there's a whole cascade of predator and prey happening, which we are restoring in this country to some extent, including non-natural trophic cascades with non-native invasive species, which is absolutely fascinating mm. that it works, that the actual system works, even though you've got different species in it that shouldn't ought to be there. I think that's really interesting. Have we got... So, the the stuff around restoring some of those species at the higher up the, the ecosystem or the, yeah. the food chain, so to speak, is really yeah. exciting, but is there still the density of insects and small mammals lower down to support those reintroductions across large parts of the UK. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. You <clears throat> so you'd have to have wild land which was structurally more diverse, scruffier mm-hmm. uh, and large scale in order to make sure that you had enough of the little critters in order to support the bigger critters. I uh, absolutely agree. Um, uh, it, in a sense, you can get away with it if it's a woodland species, if the woodland system is big enough. And uh, so, for example, somewhere like the forest of Dean, which has got wild, 2,000 wild boar in it at the moment, um, lots of fallow deer, sheep as well. Yeah. So it's a very high grazing pressure, rather like the new forest. There is a browse line everywhere. If you ask a question, well, is there enough to support, for example, insectivorous birds there? One of the things that large carnivores can do is alter the distribution of some of these large herbivores. And some places will be relatively large herbivore-free, which will get regeneration, and some will be hammered by large herbivores, because that's where the large carnivores aren't. And uh, so it's quite possible that you need to kickstart some of these systems and restore biodiversity by introducing the landscape of fear. Um, and uh, it's interesting because large carnivores tolerate us. Actually, we don't tolerate 
large carnivores. That seems mm-hmm. to be the, the way at the moment. Um, and so, you know, wolves are tricky. But if there were 50 lynxes in England right now, loose, you would never see them. Yeah. You would never see them. Yeah. But they would be having an effect. Yeah. I'm not saying that should happen. That would be entirely irresponsible. Uh, but hypothetically. Hypothetically. Yeah. Um, we've moved quite deep into sort of quote-unquote rewilding, which is fine. Um, so, how, obviously you're head of habitat and species, species conservation, and habitat conservation yeah. for the National Trust. How, yeah. how do you think the National Trust's approach to nature conservation and the environment has changed since you first joined it, which was... Yeah, over 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for most of our, our land and water, we have adhered to the rather prescriptive approach to nature conservation. Yeah. Um, and that's partly because we needed to rescue, for example, grasslands from being overcome by scrub and losing the flower-rich and, and butterfly-rich open parts of the grassland. And so we have conformed over time mostly to pretty prescriptive nature conservation and uh, not letting nature be in charge, uh, not letting go in a sense, um, uh, cautious about reintroductions of controversial species and also cautious about um, eradications of, of, of species as well. So we've been, we've been pretty cautious, but mostly following the general line of other NGOs that manage land and also the agri-environment prescriptions to um, um, keep some of the habitats that we thought we were losing in better shape by quite prescriptive and intensive resource-hungry nature management. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of late, we have thought hard about whether or not we can let go a bit more. Um, And we're still in that thinking process as an organisation. Um, I think there are opportunities for that to happen. And I just, uh, I, I think there's something that we need to think about as do other, other people. But I mentioned <clears throat> lynxes and, for example, beavers is another one. Which Beavers are quite trendy in terms of reintroduction. They seem to be you know, the best things in sliced bread. In They're pretty groovy. Uh, they're not without problems but yeah. but uh, and we, but we know those and we can manage for them they're fairly easy to catch up and uh, uh, deal with um, but what's interesting is that you, for both the large carnivores and I think for beavers possibly for other small predators like smallish predators like pine martens you can get an effect an ecosystem effect without having a viable population there Right. So you can put a couple of beavers into a catchment. That's not a viable population. Yeah. And they can do great things in terms of flood risk alleviation, increasing biodiversity, slowing the flow, cleaning up the water and so on. Yeah. But it's not a viable population. Mm-hmm. It still needs intensive management. And I think as a nation, we need to start thinking about what are we doing when we introduce just a couple of beavers into a catchment? which we then have to intensively manage right from the start because of the fence, Yeah, uh, is that it's not establishing a viable population, which is what the Rio 1992 Conventional Biological Diversity Summit said, is uh, you sign up to this, you sign up to 
reintroduction, reinstatement of populations of species that you made extinct. Mm. And we don't seem to be doing that. We seem to be reintroducing the species, but not re-establishing the populations. And it's interesting that the only viable population of the beaver in this country is the one that's based on unauthorised uh, reintroduction or escapees, and it's in the Tay catchment, mm. where there's, there, there are hundreds, possibly thousands of beavers. East now. coast of Scotland. Yeah, yeah. River Tay. And uh, that's doing very well, and uh, will not now be uh, eradicated, as was a prospect at one time, because it was an unauthorised reintroduction. But that's where you're getting a whole catchment effect as well as viable population. Mm-hmm. We don't have that anywhere else. So we, we need to get ourselves sorted out as to what we really, really want here. Um, do we want a couple of beavers, which is all fine, doing great things in one catchment, and then harvesting the kits, which is what you have to do because the parents don't tolerate them. Where do you put those kits? That's quite resource-hungry. Yeah. Or do you look at a big catchment like the Thames, for example, or like the Tay, as it, as it was, and say, okay, everybody along this catchment, let's celebrate the res- restoration of, of the beaver, and um, let uh, let the beavers be more in charge of their fate and develop a viable population. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a challenge. We haven't got there yet. Yeah. Same would apply to lynxes. One lynx could have an amazingly amazing effect in terms of just redistribution of its prey. They do, but actually that's not a viable population. Mm. What do we want? That's an interesting what do you question. want? <laughs> Which would you like? <laughs> Which would I like? Mm. <laughs> I think there's, there's what I'd like personally. I think um, I find these animals very exciting. Mm. I find the prospect of potentially seeing them very exciting. Mm. I've never seen a beaver in the wild before, mm. I think. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm a naturalist. It's not just a, mm. an academic interest. It's mm. a an enjoyment and yeah, love yeah. of nature and for me a viable population is much more interesting and exciting mm. than something that's just been put there to serve yeah, as a yeah. function for, for, for most people though Matt just seeing the beaver and not really worrying about whether it's in a viable population mm. would be quite sufficient yeah this is true so there's a sort of ecological side to uh, your thinking if you would like to see a viable population as well because that's mm. quite es- esoteric yes actually for a lot of people yeah yeah um, so that's a little bit about how the National Trust's conservation approach has changed. Um, what What are some of the places the National Trust looks after for wildlife that mean the most to you, or maybe one particular place where you've had a particular involvement or impact? Yeah, it's interesting. So, a, a, a great question. Um, so, it's a couple of things. The, the first is... Um, five or six years ago, we did a review of seabirds on National Trust land mm. and most of them are on obviously cliffs or islands and yeah. we found a couple of islands that we, we didn't know existed and, uh, <laughs> in, term, National Trust in terms, terms of our ownership <laughs> uh, um, and, we, and we, we did eventually find out yeah, yeah oh that's right we own that you know, people think you know, <laughs> but never been on it and so on only in the National Trust could you lose an uh, island there's about 50 of them 50, 50, 50 <laughs> islands and um Many of them are in archipelagos, uh, like um, effectively the Strangford Lock has got a series of islands that we uh, own or manage, for example. Yeah. Farne Island has got 17 islands or islets on it. Uh, so that takes up quite a few. 
Um, and they are, they are really exciting, not just for the usual things of seabirds and also the controversial management of, um, for example, non-native mammals on them, such as Lundy, but uh, where, where we eradicated the rats uh, with, with others. But also, they are places where evolution and extinction happen rather more explicitly in front of you, in your face, than in other places. So you can see it happen there. So the Lundy cabbage, only found on Lundy. Yeah. Fine. It looks different from the Isle of Man cabbage, just. But it's also got two invertebrates on it, one of which is only found on the Lundy cabbage. <laughs> and uh, that's because it's been isolated. And that yeah. isolation has generated through natural selection um, some uh, uh, unique characters of what's a new species. Um, I mean, and that is that is in your face. You can go and see the Lundy cabbage. You, you, even in your, your your sort of basic footwear, you don't have to climb anywhere. You can see Lundy cabbage, and on that Lundy cabbage will be a species that's unique to Lundy cabbage. And as an example of evolution in process, and I think sometimes we forget that. Yeah, we talk about extinction a great deal. Just think about the Living Planet Index last week. Yeah. All the extinction statistics, all the doom and gloom stuff. But actually, evolution is happening as well, mm. and we, we we need to we need to think about that. And it's it's played out very very well as Darwin knew on islands, and that's where you can see it most of all. So that, there's something like Lundy is a very good example of that. Um, we don't seem to be able to be stopping evolution sometimes, as long as there is enough of a population there, as long as there's genetic diversity in that population, as long as the traits can be. How it uh, passed on through generations, and as long as you've got a selection pressure, then you've got natural selection. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> we kind of forget evolution through natural selection is a hugely important driver today, as it was when Darwin was trying to formulate it, and obviously way back before then. So islands, yeah, Lundy, yeah, Farns is is in the same situation, you know. Um, but typically people are looking at seabirds there, um, not necessarily looking at evidence of um, other processes like evolution, but um, you know, there, there could be some isolation factors there that are driving um, genetically different organisms from the founder population. And then I would point to some of the amazing places like Fermanagh and Crom which is a domain or an estate uh, which is full of woodlands and water and, and, and lots of wildlife. And mm. The water is basically is not very good quality uh, because of um, pig farm pollution. This is in Northern Ireland. Yeah. In Northern Ireland. Uh, the woodlands are, are variable. There's some lovely wet woodlands, oak woodlands, ash woodlands and so on. And you can access most of this only by boat. And, and it is... Amongst other things, it's an, it seems to me it's an epicentre for at least one species of bat, possibly of European significance there, the soprano pipistrelle, which likes to feed over water. Um, but if you put a bat detector out uh, uh, just at the edge of the water on the Crom estate in the summer, 95% of the detection calls, of which there will be thousands over a short period, short period of time, will be soprano pipistrelle. It just seems to be really important for, for them there. Yeah. Um, but it's also great for you know uh, wildlife in general. It's it's, it's fantastic. 
Um, you could easily spend a week there in a canoe just seeing new wildlife every day. You mentioned, just going back to the islands, you mentioned your involvement in helping to eradicate the rats from some of the islands, Do you remember which has helped seabird species like, for example, the Manx Shearwater, yeah. which I've gotten to know quite well yeah, this summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember going back to the island after the eradication process and sort of witnessing for yourself the starts of recovery of oh, those yeah. birds? Oh, yes. Hugely emotional event, mm. actually. Um, because uh, it was very controversial at the time. We, we got a battering uh, for, A, not consulting, so we only communicated. We didn't consult, otherwise we wouldn't have been wouldn't have gone ahead with it. Mm-hmm. B, uh, because of the welfare implications of applying poison to rats, same poison as we would, you know, farm buildings would have around their farm, mm-hmm. uh, farmers would have around their farm buildings. Um, and C, because we were set to eradicate not just the brown rat, but the black rat, which is very rare, virtually extinct in this country now because uh, one of the last populations was on the Shants in the in the Hebrides and it's been eradicated now for the same reasons we did so on Lundy which was to remove the threat to baronestic seabirds mm-hmm. and so when we did finally eradicate the rats um, what happened was really quite remarkable it was a big learning curve for us we, we made some t- tentative models about how uh, quickly Manx shearwaters would recover given that they are for, for the first five or six years of their life they're away from the breeding colony in the South Atlantic and they come back to where they nested so there was always going to be a lag time yeah. if the increased uh, survival rate due to lack of rats was going to be manifested actually it happened much more quickly than that mm. and we think that's because there were a lot of adult birds out there at sea waiting to coming in every spring to try and nest on Lundy but being deterred by the rats mm. and we also wonder whether there might be quite a, might have been quite a few Welsh immigrants from the Welsh islands Pembrokeshire islands coming in as well right but basically the the population um, increased very rapidly and I recall um, the the outdoor urinal in in uh, by the pub in, in London. <laughs> it's one of the few places where you can actually um, get a signal on your on your phone because you've got direct line of sight to the to mainland of Devon. Yeah, and so you do find men remarkably multitasking in the urinal. <laughs> uh, on on Lundy, trying to phone people at the same time as having a wee, and. Uh, if you're out there at the right time of night, these days, you can hear the shearwaters calling all around you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just fantastic. It's a great sense of, uh, of um, it's a great sense of, I suppose, achievement. Um, also, just, it's almost as if they're saying thank you mm-hmm. when they're calling. Yeah. Um, and, they, and, you know, there's 3,000 pairs now that were less, wow. than, less than 200 when we, uh, when we did the eradication. So it's been a big recovery. The results aren't in for this year, but I, I believe they're up on three more than 3,000. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just yeah. fantastic. It is rather remarkable at night to hear them all yeah, yeah. flying around your head, heading yeah. out to sea to yeah. go and feed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're the major food of peregrines on the island, mm. and that's fine. There are enough of them to, to cope. Yeah. Um, they weren't when there were so few of them, uh, but there, are, there is enough to go around, I think. Actually, yeah, the two... Well, hmm... No, I would say where I was up on the west coast of Scotland in the Hebrides at the two peregrine plucking posts that we found the major food source was puffins. 
Pavins, yeah. Um, there were there were some Manxes in there, but I would say Peregrines predominated in the in the puffins. Know, remains puffins. that we found. Yeah, well, that, that's partly because you had lots of puffins, but yeah. you know, there's there's only still only tens of puffins on 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 Lundy. Yeah, and they, who knows? Their population might might go up, might not. It's it's increased over the last ten years. Has been attributed to lack of rats. I'm not so sure, but because um, puffins are so subjected to, um, you know, sort of surface sea temperature effects on their prey and, and, and so on. Whereas the Manx shearwater, um, in the way that it feeds and where it feeds, it... Do they feed much deeper? No. No, no, no. Uh, much more shallow, but, uh-huh. but they feed at night waiting for squid to come up, right. for example, and uh, small fish and so on. So they, they're, um, you know, their centre of distribution is much further south than the mm. rather boreal puffin, which is going to be set to moving north, I think. Mm. Um, both will move, move north. So, yeah, so you know, that, was, that was really in- interesting and, and um, uh, tricky, but um, it's good, good to have a sense of achievement of it. I mean, it's great that the birds have recovered. Yeah. Um, what else did I want to ask about? What, um, what view is the relationship between... Um, beauty in the sort of conventional national trust sense and wildness or places that benefit wildlife yeah yeah yes so uh, there's a um, if you were thinking in, in, in Scottish natural heritage speak wild land has some attributes which some of which collectively would give you beauty one of which is the absence of modern man-made structures in the in the landscape, mm. uh, ruggedness is another one. Um, distance from roads is another one. Um, quietness, dark skies, these these sorts of things, um, and obviously they they are what you might see in a wilded landscape or rewilded landscape. But for many people, they also have attributes of what might be called beauty. I think as well. Mm. Um, but I. I would want to say that beauty is a double-edged sword in some senses because one of the things that we are bereft of at the moment in terms of our senses is fear. Uh, A fear uh, of being out at night, in dark nights with no lights, fear of weather, fear of cold, fear fear of being too hot, fear of lack of water, what do we do and so on. we probably have lost some of the things that we can easily get back if we if we experience them. Um, some of the some of the things that give us the confidence to be in places which are wild. If you get that confidence, that might affect what you think is beautiful or not. Mm. So it, I think it's a movable feast at the moment. But our our appreciation of wild land is so raw, and it's the tip of the iceberg really at the moment. You know, we don't know what to do with it. We just you know, look over a patch of wild land and, and it's, for many people, it would be utterly scary. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get the confidence or b- rebuild the confidence to be able to, for example, survive a night outdoors yeah. in, in a wild place? You know, which uh, um, I think we could do, you and I could do, mm-hmm. um, but for most people that would be just crazy. I mean, you know, it's even just simple things like... Um, Going to the toilet outdoors, for example, yes, or finding clean water, yeah, getting something to eat, yeah, and naively thinking that you're going to hunt down the rabbit, whereas you can survive on fruits, yeah, 
which are much which easier. aren't going to run away. Yeah, you know, things, <laughs> things, things like that. Yeah. Um, so I think once you get past those barriers and get into that zone of confidence, then beauty might be very, very different. Your, mm. your appreciation of beauty, rather like wild, you know. So Jay Griffiths, um, in her book on wild, she asked um, Greenlanders what they thought was wild, and you know, looking at a landscape of ice and water and, and, and rock, and they just said, well, we don't, have, we don't know what wild is. This is, this is, our, this is where we live. Yeah. Um, uh, so wild and the beauty of wild is, is actually a construction mm. of ourselves, of Western thought, which may not be applicable in the, some of the places that we think are wild. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty complicated. I don't know, I'm frightened of using the word beauty sometimes. I'm not frightened of it, I'm just, um, I just think, you know, some things are really beautiful because of the moment, you know, like a gigantic wave with a surfer going down it. Yeah. Um, but that's different from taking in a whole experience, a whole big experience yourself. Mm-hmm. I think if beauty was really deep, then it would be your experiences, your deep experiences, as opposed to skin deep. I don't think, but I think we need to get back to that sometimes. Yeah. Do you think the National Trust is helping people to experience that more? It's very individual. Mm. It's spiritual. Mm. And it's very individual. And you can see lots of people doing, trying to get back to that deeper experience in lots of different ways. You know, people um, indulge in... Um, Shamanic-led rituals, for example, yeah. or, or uh, other other sorts of things. So that I mean, that, that's quite extreme, but you can that's that's where people want to go for those who want to do it. And I can't see National Trust being as an institution being involved in that in that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I think we're you know we're providing for the the clientele that we typically is our membership. Yeah. Um, we've we've sort of circled around it quite a lot and touched on it in terms of reintroduction of species but what um, rewilding in quotation marks means lots of different things to mm. different people what what does it mean to you or for you uh, I think one of the things that about reintroductions is there are two things one you could have a totally functional transactional um, view of it and say and, and you know that, that that is where some people are with the pine martin for example uh, so pine martin scare away grey squirrels grey squirrels damage trees therefore have, have less damage to trees yeah. totally transactional <coughs> and functional yeah that's one end of the spectrum the other end of the spectrum is the totally outrageous uh, restoration of stuff um, so for example um, the grey whale used to be in the Atlantic and it was made extinct by us through overhunting. It now exists in the Pacific. It's quite possible because of the thawing of the Arctic sea ice in the summer that, and the Northwest Passage genuinely being open, mm-hmm. that some grey whales will come down the wrong ocean and recolonize the Atlantic. And that has happened mm-hmm. in that some grey whales will come, come back. Yeah. But prior to that happening, I was thinking about if I was a millionaire, how would I get grey whales back into the Atlantic? Um, and their particular function of uh, shallow seas, uh, they grub into the bottom of muddy um, uh, uh, benthos and um, sift out mollusks. That's, that's their 
that's their niche, which, which nothing is doing that at the, at the moment because they've, they've gone. Um, but wouldn't it be just fantastic to see grey whales back? That's what was in my head, not because of their functionality. Yeah. Um, so we have, to th- we have to think in those sorts of ways. We, we, we've really done a good job of messing up stuff. And I, um, I'm really driven... I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I'm really driven by... In 1975, I was part of an expedition to an island off Mauritius called Round Island, which had been completely trashed by rabbits and goats, so there was hardly any soil left on it. Okay. There were, on the Mauritian mainland and also on this island, which was the last refuge for reptiles and palms and some seabirds, two species of peculiar boa-like snakes... And one of them, the Round Island boa, is still there, and now it's doing pretty well. The island has recovered, having lost its rabbits and goats. And the other one, we were there in 1975, hadn't been seen since 1967, and it's a burrowing boa. In other words, you know, its its pencil-like head strongly indicated it was burrowing into soil, and its prey was perhaps skinks that were burrowed into soil. Mm-hmm. Hadn't been seen since 1967, and then during our expedition, we found one specimen, which was an adult, almost certainly an adult female. And uh, we uh, measured her, uh, we let her go. 1967, hasn't been seen since. It's extinct. It's officially extinct because it's been 30 years, concerted searches right. have been seen. And on one hand, that's a profoundly depressing thought that you saw the last yeah. one yeah yeah on the other hand it spurs me on to make sure that i don't want to see i don't want to personally experience another extinction mm. in my lifetime of course there are extinctions out there that i'm not personally involved with yeah but i know why this snake became extinct it was because rabbits and goats were introduced to the island for all the good reasons to do with providing fresh meat for shipwreck sailors yeah they trashed the island they removed the habitat, mm. uh, we made the Round Island burrowing boa extinct. Mm. And we, we should feel guilty about that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, feel a sense of loss. I think we have touched on this before and spoken yeah. about how it is some of those deeply personal experiences of yeah, yeah, certain yeah. animals oh, absolutely. that can motivate you to carry on. Absolutely. For me, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure I have such a close encounter to a species which has gone mm. extinct but there are certainly birds for example the turtle dove or the corncrake where I've got yeah. very strong memories of experiencing those birds particularly yeah. the corncrake up in the western islands of Scotland that kept me awake every night yeah. for three weeks when I was camping mm. where you know if that species were to go extinct even just from the UK yeah. that'd be hugely yeah. sad to me yeah. and it's those sorts of things that you know like you say motivate you when you're yeah, sitting yeah, at, a, oh, at a desk behind, in front of a computer um, I wanted to ask as well, one of the things that I've noticed since I met you almost a year ago mm. is your ability to ask or think about, you said with the grey whales and having a million mm. pounds just now, mm. ask probing or mm. left field questions that other people mm. wouldn't necessarily ask. Have you learned that from somewhere? Have you refined that skill to ask questions that kind of challenge people's received wisdom or the orthodoxy in conservation? The... Um... <laughs> I think it's been very helpful for me to have done um, 
uh, a PhD mm. to uh, actually, and then to actually lecture in ecology. And you really do have to understand your ecology if you've got to lecture in it. And you need, and it's been useful therefore to have had a scientific discipline to be able to get, have the confidence to understand about systems and interactions. And, and, and that's, that's really important because that then means you can lift off into, into other bits of uh, wilder territory in terms of your, in terms of your thinking. Mm. Um, I haven't really been, uh, maybe I have been influenced by him, but um, I've, I've worked over time in Mauritius with um, Carl Jones, who um, heads up conservation director in, in the Durrell Institute of uh, Conservation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Carl is an art, was um, an artist to trade, but he was sent to Mauritius by Jersey Wildlife Conservation Trust to basically run down the project which was trying to keep hold of the Mauritian castrol. Uh, basically shut it up because the species was going to go extinct, mm-hmm. as was the echo parakeet, as was loads of other stuff. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to try and save it. And he's an excellent aviculturalist. And he was able to save the kestrel and with the teams that he built up, other species. So he had a vision and he achieved those visions and he's still doing it. But what he also did was he was pretty relaxed about thinking beyond the box mm-hmm. so for example Abbot's booby is not found this is a, a big seabird like a gannet it's not found in the western part of the Indian Ocean these days it used to be in Mauritius I think the nearest place is Christmas Island now which is on the eastern side of the Indian Ocean his plan is to put the Abbot's booby back into the western part of the Indian Ocean which is a major job but he's not phased by that, and I think maybe, maybe some of Carl's thinking has rubbed off on on me. You know, just think mm. think beyond the box, and it can happen. You know, for years on Round Island, we realised that a, an important grazer was missing. Yes, rabbits and goats were there; they'd gone, but there was something else that was missing, and it was the giant tortoises mm. that had become extinct, except on Isle Dabra. They're back on Round Island now doing a great job dispersing native seeds and so on. Well, that would have been outrageous to have thought about putting giant tortoises there, um, unless you realise that these large herbivores are keystone species. I was reading a fascinating article last week, which was a a review of some of the latest evidence on the links between rewilding, quote-unquote, and climate change, Mm. that was talking about these large species which which perform seed dispersal, Mm. which can have an effect on reducing fire risk, because Mm. it disperses Mm. vegetation in a way that's more akin to how it would have been naturally, Mm. that creates gaps and then clumps, which I don't fully understand the mechanics, but reduces the fire risk, which... Mm. You know, could help to mitigate some of the effects of climate change that we're seeing in countries like the US today, for example, yeah. where there's huge increase in wildfires, yeah. partly due to climate change, but also partly due to the way that yeah. forests are managed as well. That's right. So another another aspect to do with climate change and, and rewilding is um, when wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park in 1995. Mm amongst the various effects that have been claimed there, such as reintroducing a landscape of fear, wolves mean woodland and so on, which has been challenged because the numbers have 
deer were going down before the wolves were reintroduced. So the story is not quite clear cut. But I think there's something in it. But another thing that was more interesting with respect to climate change is that there's a very strong global warming signal in Yellowstone National Park. And you don't get the snow lie in the spring, which would have killed quite a lot of the wapiti, the North American red deer, and provided lots of food for scavengers, such as bears and, uh, um, <clears throat> and other carnivores, bald eagles and, and golden eagles and so, and so on. Mm. Um, and so you don't get that spring die-off, which is critical for the breeding success of everything that feeds would rely on, on that meat. And what the wolves did when they came back in, they killed something every four days. So the soul was carrion around yeah. in a time of climate change when carrion wasn't going to become available because these animals weren't getting stuck in the snow and dying or just dying of starvation at the end of the spring because of the mild weather yeah. that climate change had generated. Mm. So the wolves were acting as a climate change mitigation, hmm. which I think is really interesting, actually. That is really interesting. Um, so, you know, without those wolves, there wouldn't be those carcasses. Without those carcasses, there wouldn't be the scavenging population of animals that uh, are in Yellowstone National Park having good breeding success. Mm. I think that's an interesting story. It might be a story, it might be challenged, but then that, that's, that, that's science. You, you, you put something up there, you test it, and maybe it's challenged, and maybe it's um, found to be not quite as it seems. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all right too. But it, it's a nice story of interaction yeah. at the moment. Um, you're also chair of the Vincent Wildlife Trust, yes. um, which is, yes. works on mammals. Yes. Is there anything you've learned from your, in terms of skills, as your role from chair that's helped you in your National Trust job or in other elements of your work? Yes. So I've been chair for uh, nearly a year. I was elected in December to start in January of this year, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I very, feel very privileged to be what is effectively the third chair of Vincent Wildlife Trust. The first one was Vincent Weir himself, then Tom Chew, and then myself. Uh, but I was a trustee before that as well. Mm. So the role changes and you, you move from, as a trustee, I would be used for mammal ecology experience. Uh, as a chair, of course, you don't use that. And we already have on on board of trustees now some, an excellent mammal ecologist, for example, much, 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 much more active and knowledgeable than, than I am. Um, so the chair role is about bringing out the best for the organisation amongst the trustees. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. That's one thing. The second thing is supporting the CEO, totally supporting the CEO. Mm -hmm. So it's the two things combined. And actually it's been, it's been a challenging year for Vincent Wildlife Trust. We have a structural review. Uh, we're developing and still developing our strategies for conservation and the business planning. So it's been quite a quite a busy year. At the weekends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so so it's it's those two things really, just bringing out the best in trustees. And what that means is you have to have the trustees you want. So one of the things we've done is um, looked at the skill sets of trustees against the skill sets that we need in the mm -hmm. organisation. Yeah. And not surprisingly, well maybe surprisingly, we've got enough mammal stroke ecology stroke conservation expertise what we haven't got enough of is 
um, business planning, financial acumen, and you know, investment planning, and so mm. on. And that's what um, general management, and that's what we need um, uh, expertise in. So we're recruiting pretty soon now for uh, trustees with those kinds of backgrounds as opposed to nature conservation type backgrounds. It yeah. sounds bizarre for a nature conservation organisation but we've got to make sure that we continue to be aggressively pursuing uh, funds, external funds to keep the organisation going mm. and uh, that we make uh, very wise use of what money we've got and that's, you don't need nature conservation skills to do, the, mm. to do those. Possibly as a penultimate question, are there any other wildlife encounters that are particularly memorable to you, maybe again at National Trust play places that you'd like to like to share? Well, if you are um, out and about on a National Trust property, you're typically not alone. Mm. So you are with other people because you're visiting um, with a manager or a ranger or in my case recently building surveyors. Um, I've been running bats and buildings workshops for building surveyors. I've done three this year so far, two more to do. And actually the last one was last week in Polston Lacey, where the, the very big bat called the serotine bat, which until fairly recently has changed a bit with climate change, it was largely confined to southeast England. Mm-hmm. And it disappeared from Poles and Lacey about 10 years ago. Poles and Lacey being where though, sorry? It's in Surrey. Right. Big house in Surrey. Okay. Country mansion in Surrey. Yeah. Owned by National Trust. And uh, so I wasn't expecting to see any evidence of serotine bats when I took troops of the building surveyors into the roof void at Poles and Lacey to show them the kinds of habitats that bats use in roof voids and how big roof void needs to be, and where they might be roosting if they were there, and so on. Now, we didn't see serotine bats, but to our great uh, surprise and delight, we did find that there was an active roost there, and it's been used in the summer. The droppings are quite fresh. Um, there are enough there to indicate to me that it's a breeding roost, and they've come back, which is fantastic. Yeah. We didn't see them. Uh, they've gone for the for the winter into 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 places where they would like to hibernate. So yeah. they're tucked away. But um, they're there. They're they're back, which is a, a great treat, and um, that stimulates lots of other thoughts about of how do we manage for that roof board to make sure that we don't pollute pollute it with light in places where they are. Mm. So that's a good one. Nice. Um, as a closing question, since we met, I've introduced you to a few of my. My peers and my friends who are mm, part of what yeah. might be called the Youth Nature Movement, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. which I know you, I think you've enjoyed meeting them and yeah. seeing their enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Have you got any kind of advice or messages for either younger people or people of yeah. whatever age entering yeah. nature conservation? It's been very, very interesting, Matt, because uh, this week um, I spoke to um, a graduate who whose mother was a friend of the mother of this graduate, and she just fixed up for me to speak to her. She's based in Kent. I don't know her. Um, and what I was doing was, she was after advice on careers. I guess what I was trying to do was get her into the zone of saying, so what, asking the, enough questions for her to be able to formulate whether or not she was clear enough what she wanted to do. Mm. Excuse me. But one of the um, things I suggested to her was that she look at AFON. Mm-hmm. A focus on nature. A focus on nature website, 
and just see if there's anything there that interested her. I suspect she might be interested, but it might actually be that she's interested enough to think, this isn't quite for me, but that's an important step forward. Mm. Um, she's very interested in the interaction between people and nature, for example. Um, so uh, that, that goes on, and Afon's very useful in terms of providing an anchor point for people to consider that. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of AFON itself, I think it's, um, and other youth, youth organisations, I think it's great to have big goals and, and, and have um, a spectrum of views. Um, we talked about climate change earlier on and how difficult that is to grasp in a tangible way. Yeah. It's really difficult to, to pin down projects. But um, when I met members of AFON at Bird Fair with you, uh, we did talk about one thing which is very tan- tangible as a campaign, uh, which uh, I, th- there's not much traction within National Trust about this at the moment, but it will come, I think, and that's lead in ammunition. Mm-hmm. And I think, given that we banned lead in uh, road fuel for vehicles, we banned lead in paint, both of which were on environmental health and safety grounds, toxicity of lead, no amount of lead, however tiny, is Mm non-toxic. It seems to me that we need to really now think about lead in ammunition, especially um, where it's it's used extensively, which is in, for example, um, the pheasant shoots of those 35 million pheasants a year that that are in Britain. Uh, representing half the biomass of birds, and uh, also, you know, a, a, a quantifiable huge amount of lead that falls into the environment simply because of of lead in ammunition. And it seems to me that there, there's a good and interesting campaign there, which nobody's picking up at the moment. Everybody's interested in in, in England and Wales, certainly in the big Westminster initiatives, such as the 25-year plan, for yeah. example, and the Environment Bill and the Agriculture Bill all the stuff you're working on, but there's nothing in there about um, environmental pollution like lead pollution from ammunition. Mm. And I've learned from you that there's, correct me if I'm wrong, there's now evidence of lead pollution having population level effects on some species of wild bird. So we held out uh, within National Trust because uh, we said there's no evidence of lead pollution causing population declines. There's mm. plenty of evidence of mute swans and other wildfowl being directly poisoned yeah. by uh, lead. But there was no evidence of population declines. That exists now for one bird, which is the, the duck called the potchard. And I think it also exists now in terms of population declines for mute swans as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there'll be more and more on this. I think, you know, the, journey, the train has left the journey. There'll be more and more evidence of this. Um, and if, if we are daft enough to only start thinking about this when we think it's going to affect humans, and the particular humans that might be most affected are children, and it might, for example, affect their um, uh, IQ, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, it'll be too late for lots of other organisms by then that would have been badly affected by, by lead. Uh, so I think that then has an impact on biodiversity conservation. And... We are about biodiversity conservation. This conversation is about biodiversity conservation. National Trust is about biodiversity conservation. And if we if we have so much lead and it, and its impacts are so great uh, that we decide to stop it 
being in the environment from lead in ammunition because of human factors, by that time, quite a lot of wildlife will be really badly affected, mm. I think. So we need, to, we need to act before then, I think. And, and I think a youth group could pick that up. There's, there's a sort of niche uh, 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 that's, that's not being filled there. Yeah. And uh, it, it fits very nicely with an ethos of this is going to affect us. You know, it's a long-term effect. So it's going to affect us as youth and our children and the wildlife as, as well. So I think it would be a good one to go for. Mm-hmm. That's a good call to action. Is there anything else that you want to say or that I haven't asked about that you thought I might? No? no. Finito? Finito. Great. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Really interesting. Thanks, David. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.